Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 107, School's Out. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So I have taken quite a bit of a look at entertainment geared toward teenagers during the time I've been running both the blog and the podcast, most of which was made during my formative years in the 80s and 90s. I've talked about John Hughes movies, Say Anything, Better Off Dead, Saved by the Bell, My So-Called Life, and a number of other movies, television shows, and even comic books. This episode will certainly not be the last dive into the genre. I'm not one to turn down the chance to bleed a well dry, and I certainly have had more than I wanted to cover. But what this does is close the book on something I have been covering since the early days of this blog. And it also takes me back to one of the first, if not the first, teen-oriented television show that I ever watched, which is Degrassi. The main focus of this episode is going to be the television movie Schools Out, which was first broadcast in Canada on January 25th, 1992, and then in the United States in the summer of 1993. Schools Out was the movie finale to the original Degrassi franchise, one that started with a show called The Kids of Degrassi Street, but is more famously known for the shows Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High. I've taken a look at individual episodes of both shows over the last several years, but I'd be remiss if I didn't recap the origin story of my Degrassi fandom, because it's more involved than my simply remembering a television show that used to air on weekday afternoons when I was 14. Degrassi Junior High was created by Kit Hood and Linda Schuyler and sort of spun out of the kids of Degrassi Street. And that program had aired from 1979 to 1986, and it focused on a group living on Degrassi Street in Toronto. Hence the title. I admit I have absolutely no familiarity with the show. Uh, I didn't even learn about it until about maybe 1999 or 2000 or so when I was spending a lot of time online looking at Degrassi fan websites. I've heard the theme song. I've seen a couple of stills from the show, but never absolutely watched the kids of Degrassi Street. More on the Degrassi fan website thing later on in the show, by the way. But the kids of Degrassi Street did have a similar creative team as Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High, so that's why I'm mentioning it. And some of the kids on the kids of Degrassi Street would go on to be on the other two shows, although the actors would play different characters, so there's not like a continuity there or anything. That continuity, by the way, the continuity of what we know as Degrassi, starts with Degrassi Junior High and actually goes all the way through the 2000s and into uh, whenever Degrassi ended, maybe a few years ago. If it, I don't even know if it's still on, but like Degrassi The Next Generation, etc. And it begins with Kiss Me Steph. That is the first episode of Degrassi Junior High. That aired on January 18th, 1987 on the CBC. It would begin airing in the States that September via the Boston PBS affiliate WGBH. Wake up in the morning feeling shiny and leechy. I gotta go to school. I don't think I can make it. Don't think I can take it. I wonder what I'm gonna do. But when I look around, I see that someone is smiling right at me. Wait, that someone's talking to me. Hey, I've got a new friend. Every 
Junior High would run until 1989 in Canada, and probably about early 1990 or so in the States, where it would become Degrassi High, as the kids had aged out of junior high school. This meant a new school setting, as well as several other new characters, and we'd get two more seasons in high school, starting in the fall of 89 in Canada, and ending in January 1991, with the PBS air dates being about six months later. Wake up in the morning, I gotta shake the feeling I gotta face the day of school Who wants to be afraid of? I can ask a question Or maybe even bend the rules I'm searching for a place where I'll fit in There's a way if I look then I can win Yeah, I can see I'm not alone I can face the unknown mm-hmm. Everybody can succeed In yourself you My experience with Degrassi begins sometime in September of 1987. This is at least by my estimate. The first episode I watched was The Best Laid Plans, an episode that originally aired on the CBC in March of that year. And this was the one where Wheels and Stephanie Kay were about to go on a date and everybody was pressuring them to have sex. It all goes completely wrong, and their parents catch them before the date even starts, and we get a lesson about not giving in to perceived peer pressure and waiting until things feel right. It's not an abstinence-only approach, as Wheels has a scene where he buys condoms. And uh, funny enough, this would actually be my first experience with a more mature approach to sex and issues surrounding sex on television. Granted, I was 10 years old when I saw this for the first time, so I have little concept of what sex was, even though I already knew what sex was. I think you know what I mean. But I learned more about it as well as a a number of other issues via Degrassi. And to be fair, this supplemented what was already a pretty progressive education when it came to issues of sex, at least for me at the time. My class, the graduating class, I graduated in 1995, was one of the first classes in my school district to go through the family life curriculum or revamped family life curriculum. And we received a fair bit of AIDS education. Of course, this was the late 80s and then into the early 90s when the AIDS crisis, the AIDS epidemic was at its peak. And uh, even as far back as the fifth grade, we got quite a bit of real factual information as to what AIDS was like. And some of that was through shows like Degrassi Junior High. Now, I'd be done with Degrassi, in a sense, by the middle of high school. Of course, Degrassi would be over by the middle of high school, but I was done before it actually ended. And uh, I had the benefit of both this show as well as the teachers and peers who talked frankly about stuff like contraception and STDs, you know, way more than other parts of the country. Now, that's not to say that my education was perfect. After all, the early 90s didn't really do much with LGBTQ issues. Uh, And, you know, even in my town, my town literally was the gateway to two of the most prominent gay communities on Fire Island. And there was a lot of homophobia running through my hometown. I can tell you, however, it personally took me many years to get over my own homophobia, as well as acknowledge my privilege as a white cishet middle class male. And in many ways, I'm still working on that because, you know, such privilege like that can be very deeply ingrained. That's not to say Degrassi made me a made me a liberal or whatever. I think that came through experience and encounters with people outside my particular suburban bubble socially. But I will say that even if the show didn't profoundly affect my worldview, it did expose me to different issues and augmented what I was learning. I guess that's why I got pretty nostalgic and even sentimental about the show when I rediscovered it in the summer of 1998. At that time, I was interning for a publishing company in Manhattan. Specifically, it was what was then called the Hearst Book Group. This included William Morrow Publishing and Avon Books, which would then be sold to HarperCollins about a year or so later. 
But that summer, the summer of 1998, I worked for Avon Books, and I wound up having a pretty decent experience. Uh, you know, I made a lot of photocopies, made a few phone calls here and there, that sort of stuff. I did learn two things, though. One, I didn't want to commute from Long Island to Manhattan. It was incredibly expensive, and I was getting little or no sleep because I had to wake up to make a train at 6 o'clock roughly every morning, and I wouldn't get home until about 7 o'clock every night. Two, because of the first thing, I was the world's worst intern. I would nod off in meetings. I would half-ass just about everything. I was always rushing out to make a train. I gained 30 pounds. I was a complete mess. Anyway, that has nothing to do with Degrassi, really, but... What does have to do with Degrassi is that one uh, particular week or so I was in the publicity department and one day I was just totally bored off my ass and I began looking around the internet for something to read about. You know, this was 1998, you know, social media was limited to IRC and email listservs. We didn't have the constant flow of information that we have now. Blogging was nascent. And in hindsight, I could have started a blog. And that might have actually gotten my writing career of sorts uh, jump-started. But i got to be honest, like I had no idea what the fuck I was doing or wanted to do with my life in 1998. You know, other than get the hell off Long Island. So, I languidly surfed the web and eventually searched for Degrassi Junior High. I have no idea why I thought about it, but it was in that office that I came across the Degrassi fan site run by Mark Polger and Natalie Earle. And this was huge, mainly because I had weirdly thought that I was the only person who ever remembered the show. And I realize how ridiculous that sounds, but you have to understand that beyond my sister and maybe the occasional mention of, my, of the show by my peers, nobody I knew watched Degrassi. <laughs> Even when I was watching it, I like never knew anybody who watched this show. And if they'd seen it, they might have watched an episode or two, but not tuned into PBS every day at 5 o'clock like I was. But then again, they had cable and I did not, so there you go. But here, with the web in 1998, I had the chance to see stills from old episodes, read interviews with cast members, read facts and trivia about the show. Plus, there was a mailing list, and I joined that listserv at some point in the fall and winter of 1998, 1999 or so. And I would go on to join two others. Uh, there was one in the early 2000s for f the Freaks and Geeks fandom. I was on there very briefly uh, while the show was still going, but I think I left it soon after the show was, was over. And I was a, and still am, a member of a you know, pretty much dead, but still in touch with one another group of friends through a my so-called life list serve. But Degrassi was my first. And appropriately, it was my first internet fan interaction in that vein because it was my first teen show in that vein. Mark Polger, who was the site's webmaster, ran the listserv, by the way. And uh, I think we first connected when I mentioned to him that I had written about his site in my college newspaper, and a couple of people had randomly talked to me about it. This was a phenomenon that I would write about in a little more detail years later because it always fascinated me that people my age who knew about Degrassi had the fe same feeling I did, that they were like the only one who watched it. Yes, a bunch of them said they watched it in health class, but there were also those PBS heads who acted as if they were watching it in secret because they really should have been watching MTV, right? <laughs> I'm oversimplifying. But it was something that I looked at in more depth in 2004 because I did research for a paper that was eventually published in an anthology called Growing Up Degrassi. My paper was called Sometimes a Fantasy, Degrassi and Teen Entertainment in America, and I spent the 25 pages or so recounting Degrassi's history in the United States, comparing it to other shows and films of the time, such as My So-Called Life and the teen flicks of the 80s and early 90s, putting it in the new show Degrassi, The Next Generation, against pop culture and the sociology and psychology of the time. One of my main pieces of reference was a 2000 Frontline episode called The Merchants of Cool. This episode, by the way, was one of the best looks into the minds, habits of, and marketing to millennials back when they were still teenagers. Later on, there would be a follow-up called Generation Like, which explored the impact of social media on both millennials, late millennials, and Generation Z. 
This paper was my way of contributing to the fandom. I mean, I was no superfan by any means, and the only thing I had done at that point was I sent Mark a CD booklet I had created in PageMaker for an unofficial soundtrack to the show that he'd created. I remember pitching the paper to Michelle Byers, who was the growing up Degrassi book editor, and I said I had the unique perspective of an American fan who saw this as an oddity among the sheen of the music video-influenced teen movie romps of the 80s or the Saturday morning cartoon and nighttime soap-influenced TV shows of the early 90s, you know, like Saved by the Bell and Beverly Hills 90210. She accepted it, and it helped me connect with a few other fans. So if you'll allow me to quote my own stuff here, here is an excerpt from my paper about Degrassi. This is from the section of the paper called Fantasy Over Reality. In fact, many of the American fans felt a kinship with the Degrassi characters because of this realism. Tracy Merrifield, who watched Degrassi in California and Washington, cites the story of Spike's pregnancy as a part of the show with which she deeply identified, and notes that, quote, the episodes covered so many different aspects of this issue and did so in a manner that was informative but not preachy. Seth Sager of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania adds, as a kid, the few episodes I did see had the impact of opening my eyes to issues that I never knew existed. Tara Fetty wrote, I was the same age as the characters, and when the show was on, my parents were separated and I lived with my dad. It was hard for him to talk to me about some things you would talk about to a teenage girl. I learned by watching the show the dangers of unprotected sex and taking drugs. It made it easier to talk to dad because I was already familiar with the issues. And Daniel Mesa recalls, I remember being actually a bit shocked by the show sometimes because it was so raw. It was amazing to experienced this show as a teen growing up right along with them. And then Kit Hood, who was one of the creators, noted in an interview while producing Degrassi, letters from fans who were deeply affected by the show were a huge source of energy and inspiration. Quote, It was the touching fan letters that gave me the motivation to get through the rough days, he said. There were times that the pressure would escalate, especially when the kids were being rowdy and non-compliant. The fan letters prevented me from exploding at everybody. It was encouraging to read how we touched their lives. Teenagers actually make major decisions based on our show. For that reason, we tried to cover as many issues as possible. So the show did have an impact, even in the United States where it was not as widely viewed as it was in Canada. And I'll get back to its legacy later on in the episode. But now I need to get to the movie, and I'm going to do that right after this break. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. (laughs) That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. We've done it. The Degrassi kids have graduated. Now, the real education begins. It's engagement. Don't sacrifice your whole future for a guy. You're a tough. Would you maybe like to go out sometime? No more living with my grandparents. She's going away to university next year. He'll still be in high school, like me. This time, there's no turning back. School's out. The Degrassi Movie Special, Sunday.
Ironically, as much as I watched Degrassi on WNET 13 when it ran back in 1989 to 1991, I missed the initial airing of Schools Out. This is not surprising to me because I missed most of Degrassi High's final season. At some point, Channel 13 took the show off of weekday afternoons and moved it to Sunday mornings. I was being dragged to church at that time, so I only wound up seeing maybe two episodes of that final season. The series' last regular episode, which served as a finale, was called One Last Dance, and that storyline was that Degrassi High was closing for renovations, and that meant that the characters were going to wind up at different schools for their last year of high school. Caitlin and Joey, who were Degrassi's OTP and were on and off for years, got back together at this dance that they had at the end of the year, and we also ended up having a resolution of an AIDS storyline that began at the beginning of the season with a, with a bully character named Dwayne. You didn't need to necessarily know that in order to watch the film Schools Out, and, and it's a good thing because I didn't see One Last Dance, the final episode of Degrassi, until years after first seeing Schools Out. Now, if you're interested in Degrassi continuity, you do need to know that Schools Out takes place a full year after One Last Dance. And during that year, Caitlin has been taking accelerated classes so she can graduate a year early, while Joey, who repeated ninth grade and eventually discovered that he has a learning disability in season two of junior high, still has another year of high school left. They're still together when the movie opens. I first saw Schools Out in the summer of 1996. I was home sick from work with bronchitis. I was laying on the couch with a 102 degree fever, and I randomly came across this on Channel 13 in the middle of the day. I caught it from the very beginning and at first had no idea what exactly it was. Then I heard the names Joey and Caitlin and saw Wheels and Snake and said, whoa, this is Degrassi. I was in. I watched it the whole way through. Then a couple of years later, when I got on the Degrassi email list serve, I was able to get a dubbed VHS copy of the Cana that was uh, taped off the Canadian Channel Showcase. Uh, that was in the spring of 99, because I remember going to see Amanda for spring break and staying with her at her uh, apartment down here in Charlottesville at UVA. And while she went to class one day, I put it on and watched it because nobody was around. And I think between that and the time I finally moved away or even gave up the VHS copy I had for a DVD, I watched it probably about a dozen times. <laughs> so, you know, now you know how I came across it. What exactly happens in this movie and why do I remember it so vividly? Well... Let's start with the beginning of the movie, shall we? Well, in the very beginning of the movie, we immediately establish the three main plots that will run through the film. Caitlin, Lucy, and a bunch of the former Degrassi students are at their graduation ceremony. Wheels is buying a station wagon from a guy at a junkyard, and Joey is shopping for a ring at a jewelry store. And I will say that this was the exact moment after watching this show for the better part of a few years in my teens that I realized that Degrassi was Canadian. I don't think they were really that good at hiding that they were from Canada. I was just stupid. So there you go. Anyway, after these three scenes, we hit Lucy's house for a rager of a graduation party. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is actually pretty realistic as far as what a real high school graduation party that's not supervised by parents would look like. I mean, I didn't go to very many parties in high school, but I was at my friend's graduation party and it was a lot like this. It's not a very rich person's house, like in some sort of epic teen movie. There's no choreographed dancing, no DJ, nothing like really extra about it. You just simply have a very middle class looking house. You've got people milling around all over the place. Um, there, you go in and out of conversations. They go in and out of conversations. People are off to the side of any main event. Um, just a lot of rhubarb going on in the background. And then you have people in and out of a pool because Lucy has a pool and it's summer. It really feels organic. I'd say say anything is a bit of a of a level up in that direction because there's a little bit cra of craziness in there, but it's still the same sort of vibe or feel. Plus, what this party scene at the beginning gives us a chance to see is that most of uh, the Degrassi characters, the ones that we, you know, 
essentially grew up watching if you've been watching the show for four or five years. Spike's in there, the twins, Yick, Allison, Amy, a few other people, BLT, I think I spotted, uh, Tim, you know, Bronco with the, with the video camera. And Allison and Amy, by the way, are two characters who are kind of like the hot blonde girls, and they always seem the most 80s to me. I can't describe it, to be honest, except to say that I have cousins who were teenagers in the 80s, and they kind of remind me of them. And I'd also like to say that Lucy, who is the valedictorian of the Degrassi High graduating class, or whatever high school they end up going to, Lucy kind of reminds me of Diane Court, but you know I have an irrational love of say anything, so there you go. Caitlin and Joey arrive late to the party after going out with her parents for dinner, and they're surprised to see that it's still going on. Drinks in hand, they go to their separate friends, with Caitlin and Lucy talking to the newly engaged Simon and Alexa, and Joey hanging out with Snake and Wheels, who are playing pool in the basement. And I guess it's here where I'm supposed to note that Caitlin wasn't part of the Lucy-Alexa-Simon clique when Degrassi High was the show, and that she hung out with, like, Maya most of the time. But I'm no-prizing this by saying that not only was there a year between Degrassi High and Schools Out, and not only were the students of Degrassi High sent to different high schools in the area, so it's possible that Caitlin's friends were all, like, disparate, different schools and stuff, but Caitlin accelerated herself and took extra classes, so she probably became that group, part of that group in the gap year, in the missing year that we don't have stories from. I mean, I had a steady group of friends between elementary and high school, but there were also friends that I had up to my sophomore, junior year who I just kind of drifted apart from as the rest of high school went on. So it's very, very possible. Anyway, back into the story. Lucy's looking at this engagement ring and saying Simon and Alexa's marriage is doomed to fail, especially if you check the statistics on teen marriage. Downstairs... Wheels brags about his car, while Snake brags about getting a job lifeguarding, which he hopes will be a gateway to getting laid because he doesn't want to go away to college as a virgin. Joey, who is also a virgin, and Wheels, who apparently is not, uh, because he hints at some girl in Calgary named Karen, and I'm pretty sure she exists unlike the number of girls in the Niagara Falls area that I dated when I was in junior high and high school. Uh, Joey and Wheels make fun of you know, Wheels makes fun of both of them, actually. Joey makes fun of Snake, but Wheels makes fun of both of them. It's got this weird teen sex comedy beat that doesn't, I mean, it doesn't go full American Pie, but it really does serve to set up the contrast between Joey's summer and Snake's summer because Joey's going to be a total player for the better part of the next couple of months while Snake is going to grow increasingly frustrated. Something that works, actually, when you watch it happen, but it probably needed a little bit more Snake and seeing Snake deal with it to really flesh it out. Most of the focus of, of, of the guys in this movie is on Joey. Joey then leaves the basement to go see Caitlin and takes her into a bedroom. No, they don't do that. He takes her into a bedroom to give her the ring and to propose to her. He wants her to stay home because he's still got another year of high school left and she's going away to college out in Carleton. She gets very weirded out. She turns him down. Joey leaves the party upset. And as he's leaving, he runs into Tessa Campanelli. Tessa was uh, around the... I think he's the, she's the year after him, or she's about a year younger than him. They will be back in high school together the following year, and she's ditched her boyfriend, Todd. Um, this is a guy I'd never seen before, by the way. And his entire purpose in the movie is just to get high at Lucy's party with Yick and a couple other guys and just be a total asshole to her. So she's just like, I'm done with you, and leaves the party. She asks Joey for a ride home. He gives her a ride home. She tries to get the door of his car open. She can't. He reaches over and opens it for her. And as he does that, she kisses him, and they kiss some more. The next day, Caitlin feels guilty. She feels guilty about turning Joey down, but Lucy does offer her some perspective, which she takes, and then she goes to see Joey at his job at the Shopper's Drug Mart while she's on her way to work. And by the way, uh, Caitlin works at a family restaurant much like a Friendly's, so she's wearing this red apron with frilly sleeves on it that's like wannabe Main Street USA waitress or something. It feels very real. Had... uh, 
school's out been shot five or ten years later, I could see her in some sort of chain restaurant with pieces of flair like Jennifer Aniston in Office Space. And by the way, I believe the restaurant is supposed to be a chain restaurant up in Canada called Swiss Chalet. At least that's what a quick Googling for Canadian family restaurants got me. The uniforms look very similar. So I think that's what they were going for. Anyway... She goes to the Shoppers Drug Mart, she talks to Joey, and and she sees him about a split second after Tessa shows up on her work break. Tessa's wearing an incredibly tight dress, and she asks Joey on a date. She's not being subtle, people, and neither is the film, because before either girl showed up, Joey was restocking shelves full of condoms. Shields condoms, to be exact. Caitlin gives Joey the ring back. Joey insists that she keep it because after all it is a graduation present so she says you know what I'll wear it on my right hand we then get Snake's first day of his job which much to his dismay is not hard bodies but is more like family time at the pool and then we cut to Wheels who has gotten Joey to help tow his car which I should mention is a 1979 Chevy Malibu classic station wagon how do I know this Well, the girl I dated my senior year of high school had this exact car, and there's a shot somewhere in the movie where I saw the back of the car and instantly recognized it. Her car was 70s shit brown, and Wheels' light, that light blue that was always out in the 70s, kind of like cornflower blue, but a little lighter, like a denim blue, although it's like really rusted too. I actually practiced driving quite a bit on her car, and that station wagon was a beast to drive. You know, you'd fishtail like crazy trying to make a left if you didn't do it slowly enough. I think at times you were even lucky that things started. I had to rent a Mercury from like a cheap car rental place to take my driving test, by the way, because I could never get the stick shift to work correctly in my dad's Accord. Um, I just sucked at it. I could probably drive stick if I had to, but I was just, I was terrible, terrible at it. And that girl and I were together for like a year and a half. And at one point I did get my own car. I had this total shitbox of a 1991 Hyundai XL. I mean, this thing had no power doors. It no had no power windows. It was just, there was no air conditioning. Uh, and I drove it into the ground. Anyway, I remember our breakup because like we tried this long distance thing my freshman year of college because she was still in high school. And she ended up cheating on me with a guy who drove a early 90s Chevy Cavalier that was like Guidette teal that that early 90s teal that like you know i could see him kind of hanging his uh his arm out the window and bopping along to gina g or something and while he's cruising whatever strip there was in our part of long island So I was kind of the Caitlyn in this relationship, sort of. I mean, this ex-girlfriend of mine, for old girlfriend, it's that it's been that 25 years, was nowhere near as cool as Joey Jeremiah. And after we broke up, I think I had like three or four people telling me that she was like a total psycho or something. I'm trying to remember this. And I was like, I think I was remember like, yeah, yeah, fuck her, man. You know, like that sort of kind of asshole dick attitude. But honestly, it's been like 25 years since we went out 24 years since we broke up the only reason i'm remembering any of this is because i have an annoying memory i can visualize entire threads of past relationships or like entire lessons that were taught to me in an 11th grade history class but at least once a week i enter a room and can't remember why the hell i went to the room like really Anyway, she's probably not listening, but if she is, hi, how are you? This is probably the most I've thought or said about you in two decades. There you go. Anyway, Joey goes out on a date with Tessa, and they get to, as he says, third base. But he doesn't go all the way because, you know, Caitlin is still his chick. And I think that Snake speaks for all of us when he says, real classy Jeremiah. Plus, the bases thing totally cliche but i can't criticize too much because i totally would have used it when i was a teenager because i was a total and utter tool when i was a teenager you probably knew that the date with tessa is contrasted by caitlin's night at work 
And that's hectic, and it's a bit of a nightmare. She's getting orders wrong. She's just like, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for the money. She and Joey go on a date sometime later. It's miserable. The movie's boring. Joey tries to go a little further than just kissing her, and Caitlin stops him, which is why we're supposed to believe that he not only accepts Tessa's offer to come over to her house while her parents are away and have dinner, but he does not hesitate to go all the way with her. They use protection. Because before they do the deed, she asks him if he has it. So we got that. And it seems like she's this really aggressive sort of slut. To use a word that I don't actually use now, but would have used back then. But to the movie's credit, Joey is constantly bragging to his friends about nailing Tessa while dating Caitlin. And is also completely stringing Tessa along. Because she actually is under the impression that he and Caitlin broke up. Spike, who's working with her at a one-hour photo place, which now that I remember, the same girlfriend that had the 79 Classic Station Wagon worked at a one-hour photo place for a while. Huh. Anyway, Tessa mentioned, uh, Spike, sorry, mentions that those two have been breaking up and getting back together for years, and Tessa should be really careful, you know. But if Joey's going to go all the way with Tessa, it must be over, because he wouldn't be that stupid, right? Yeah, he's an asshole. And it's just as much his fault as hers. And I think we need to acknowledge that because the film does essentially show us that as well. Then we get a montage. We get a montage to show the summer progressing. It's set to, by Hard to Love by Harem Scarum, which is probably as hair metal cock rock as you can get from early 90s Canada. And honestly, this is way more slick than the television show ever was. But I guess when you have the budget for a teen movie, you go for the rock montage in a teen movie, right? And in this montage, we've got Joey and Tessa getting it on. Joey and Caitlin step to get along again, and they're having the exact same type of dates as Joey and Tessa. And Snake continues to be miserable, and Wheels continues to work on his car while constantly drinking beers. And we have to pay attention to that because it's Chekhov's brew. It will be very important later. But man, this montage is just so perfect. And for a kid who watched way too much Baywatch around the time this came out, they were just pure gold. Pure gold. So with all this great stuff going on, Caitlin decides that she is ready to have sex with Joey. Lucy fulfills school's out educational television requirement and does the banana on the condom demonstration, which again was relatively progressive for the early 1990s. I mean, we were sort of learning these things in high school health classes, but if you did learn it in class, it was because you had a high school with a comprehensive sex ed program. And those did tend to be fewer than the abstinence-only programs. In fact, I remember writing an article in the student newspaper my senior year about distributing condoms in schools, and the line from our principal was the classic one of, we don't want to give out condoms because it'll encourage students to have sex type of lines. You know, because a student is going to go along completely innocent, and then one day you see a pack of Trojans in the nurse's office and suddenly say, oh shit, I'm supposed to be having sex. Joey and Caitlin do, though. They go to a fancy dinner for Joey's birthday, and it totally looks like one of those scenarios where you're a teenager and you take your date to a fancy place, and it feels like you're playing grown-ups or something. Shit, I still get that way when Amanda and I go to a really fancy restaurant for, like, a birthday or anniversary. Granted, I get anxious in any social setting, but it happens. Back to Caitlin and Joey. She's trying to hint that she wants to go back to her place and do it. She says her mother isn't home. But he's a total numbnut, and he tells her, oh, yeah, you should lock the doors and set the alarm. She's like, okay. She literally has to slip a condom into his hand to get him to get the hint. And they do it. We see a shot of Joey's ass. Meanwhile, Tessa is upset and has caught him in a lie because he said he was going out with his parents. He obviously wasn't. 
she's been trying to talk to him about something serious. And she says, you have no idea what you did, did you? And what did he do? If you guessed knocked her up, then you're right. Tessa has an abortion. Uh, I'm definitely, I am pro-choice. I'll put my, my political leanings out here up front. But I don't see the need for this in the movie. Yeah, we, we have to see that there are consequences for one's actions, but considering what happens later on, we could have just had Tessa just find out that Joey's been lying to her this entire time and feel terrible that she let herself get led on. Maybe I'm overthinking this, but it, the abortion seems so unnecessarily dramatic. It's not the first time that Degrassi's done an abortion story. Erica, one of the twins, got an abortion in the very, very beginning of Degrassi High. And she and Heather definitely had a number of conversations regarding Erica didn't use protection, whether or not they were betraying their personal morals and those sorts of things. It's a really good two-parter. But here, it's just kind of like gratuitous. Like, couldn't we have her be scared that she might be pregnant and they get her period and maybe teach a lesson about going too fast if, if that's the point you're trying to make? Because as far as we know, Joey doesn't find out about the abortion. So, yeah. Anyway, after the trip to the abortion clinic, we don't see Tessa for the entire rest of the movie. And instead, we focus on Joey, Caitlin, and their friends heading to a party at the lake house belonging to Lucy's boyfriend, Bronco. Wheels has been able to get his car all fixed up and running. Snake is still miserable. Joey got into Caitlyn's pants, so who cares about Tessa? And Caitlyn, who loved how nice Joey was to her after the sex, decides that she's going to stay home and marry Joey. This pisses Lucy off to no end because they were going to be roommates in college or university because it is Canada. She's annoyed. She's sure that she won't get housing now. I kind of call BS on this because I figure that university housing would just place her with someone random. But she's also really pissed off and probably doesn't care about the logistics of things here. And Lucy's rightfully calling bullshit on Caitlin's accepting the proposal because as much as she might be in love with Joey and really like the sex and after... She's also very scared about moving away and going to college, and perhaps that is manifesting itself here? I may be completely analyzing this wrong, but what I do know is that at the party when Caitlin shows Joey that she put the ring on her left hand and that they're engaged, Lucy's pissed. Joey is so happy. So happy, in fact, that he ribs Snake about how he doesn't have a girlfriend. Snake replies with a hint that he could blow the whole thing open on Joey and he, Joey should just keep his mouth shut. Wheels, after Joey and Caitlin walk out of the house to play volleyball, tries to put Snake's problems in perspective because Wheels' parents died a while back. They were killed by a drunk driver. Wheels has had it very much harder than Snake. Snake's got a pretty charmed life, no pun intended. He's got two parents who are alive. They're still married. They love him very much. He's headed away to college, you know, and we know Snake's one of those guys. It'll happen. He's a really, really, he's like the nice guy. And unfortunately, he's the epitome of the nice guy finishes last on this show. But Snake is really, really tired. He's been putting up with it all summer from both of them. So he says, all Wheels has done this summer is drink beer and mess with his car. Wheels is like, what should you say about my car, man? And Snake says, I would put a bag over my head if I had to drive that piece of shit. And they almost get into a fight. Bronco breaks it up. Lucy says, hey, Wheels, maybe we should take your really cool car and drive to the store and get some chips. Now, it's just a way to defuse the situation. And we know that Lucy doesn't actually need chips, but they take off in Wheels' really cool car. And, well, more on that later, because now we are about to get the scene. trying to do back there you almost blew it for me i could have killed you don't you ever do anything like that again when are you gonna learn to lighten up and take a joke it's not a joke to me joey you're just so full of yourself joey jeremiah what a studly guy let's recap the jeremiah summer shall we see what a swell and decent human being you've been you have to listen to this no you're gonna listen to me Joey Jeremiah spends his summer dating Caitlyn. Shut up. And fucking Tessa. Oh, why an ethics? Why a hero? Let's have a great big hand, shall we? Big round of applause, hey? Yes, all right. 
<laughs> Snake's got a really weird sense of humor. Tessa Campanelli? You were fucking Tessa Campanelli? No. Don't lie to me, Joey. Caitlin, it's not what you think. Then what is it? Oh. Oh. Do I look like I want to play volleyball? It just happened. I... It didn't mean anything. It didn't mean anything? So you weren't even a, a virgin, Joey? Not exactly. You either are or you aren't. Why? You're always busy. She was there. I mean, she asked me out. I never asked her out. That's true, I swear. But you didn't stop it. How long has this been going on for? A while. Tell me. Most of the summer, okay? I was going to stay here for you, Joey. I was making all my plans around you. Tessa and me, we're, we're through. It's over with. It'll never happen again. I, I promise. You're such a bastard. Caitlin, please, let me explain. I can explain, Caitlin, please. Caitlin, please. Open the door, Caitlin. Come on, let me in. I can explain this, please. Oh. Oh. My God, this was the scene. And Stacy Mystician has this perfect look of shock, disbelief, and outright anger when she says, as, she's, as Caitlin, you were fucking Tessa Campanelli? And Pat Mastriani, who plays Joey, is just doing this, God, exactly what guys in that situation do, just try to excuse his way out of it. She came on to me and all that. I mean, it's not completely what happened, but... I 100% would have expected him to throw Tessa under the bus at this moment, and he totally does. And then she just hides in a bedroom crying while he stands outside and begs for her to talk to him, even though she doesn't need to at all. And from what I gather from when we see them again at the end of the movie, she doesn't until they see one another at Simon and Alexa's wedding. Snake, meanwhile, has stomped outside. He winds up rescuing Allison from drowning because she and Amy were drunk off their asses and grabbed the canoe that was sitting by the lake and decided, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea to paddle out into the middle of the lake and, and drink beers while doing it? And then the canoe tips over and Allison can't swim. Now, I know, I know who the hell goes canoeing when they're drunk, but honestly, people do really stupid shit when they're drunk or high, which they might be because Yick and Luke were there and I'm pretty sure they brought the weed. Plus, a few minutes prior to the whole Joey Snake Caitlin moment, you hear them in the background for a quick moment grabbing the canoe and one of them saying, I love canoes. I think it's Allison. And she, she sells this sort of like, stupid inebriated enthusiasm for something that's like totally random that you have when you're that drunk and that young snake gets to be the hero here after he saves her though he just starts sobbing because everything the entire summer the confrontation with wheels the confrontation with joey rescuing allison he's just spent he can't can't deal with any of it anymore and it's then when somebody finally mentions that Lucy should have gotten that on camera and Bronco is like, wait a second, she should have been back a while ago. Where is she? And we quick cut to Wheels, who's bloodied and bruised at the scene of a deadly car accident that he caused by driving drunk. And while I said that the consequences from Joey and Tessa's fling seemed gratuitous, the tragedy here is something that was built up and hinted throughout the movie. As I mentioned, Wheels was putting this car back together, and he was rarely, if ever, seen without a beer, to the point where Snake made a comment about it earlier on. 
you know, you're drinking a lot. And he's like, well, I put back what I take. To the filmmaker's credit, too, they don't show the accident. You just know that Lucy and Wheels have been gone for a while, and then when we see them, it's post-accident. One car's overturned, the other one's being opened by the jaws of life, Wheels' car is being hosed down by the fire department, there's a dead kid, and there's a terribly injured Lucy. The falling action of the movie is three separate scenes that outline the aftermath of the party and the accident. First, Joey visits Wheels in jail, and Wheels, who is scared out of his mind, outlines exactly what he's charged with, but in a way that's completely in line with his character throughout Degrassi High, he blames everyone but himself. The phrase, it wasn't my fault, Lucy wanted chips, comes out of his mouth, like he never realized that she was just trying to get him to walk, walk it off after he was almost in a fight with Snake, and getting chips was her way of diffusing the situation. He's the one who got behind the wheel, having had more than his fair share of drinks. Speaking of Lucy, Caitlin goes to visit her in the hospital. She's currently unable to see and may not walk. Caitlin is devastated, and it's here we see the consequences of one's terrible decisions, because Lucy was the class valedictorian, and her life is forever altered and seemingly ruined by Wills' decision. By the way, I like how we cut from the accident to the jail and hospital because it cuts down on what might have wound up being a very melodramatic moment. And the fact that I can only speculate what happened at the party when they finally found out about the accident makes it even more dramatic than had they shown it. It's kind of like when your imagination fills in the violence or gore that a film or comic doesn't show you. And that's actually worse and even scarier than what you could have seen. I can only imagine what the kids went through, and then the calls to the parents, and the rides back to their homes. I mean, I can feel the tension when I just talk about it. The summer ends with Snake packing up and being nagged by his mother to pack everything in existence. We've all been there. Joey shows up to see him off, and Snake is cold. He's pissed at wheels and barely has any words for Joey aside from saying that he's sorry for the way Caitlin found out about it. Joey admits that she probably would have found out anyway and that Tessa doesn't speak to him. Snakes all see a Jeremiah and drives off. And two things about this scene. First, as we pan onto the street in Snake's house, we get a glimpse of the Degrassi street sign. It's a nice touch considering this is the end of everything. Second, there's absolutely no closure here. It's not wrapped up in any sort of bow, just Three friends who were great friends since junior high going their separate ways, but not the way they thought it would be. This should have been Joey and Wheels visiting Snake to see him off, and it should have been bittersweet, but not this bitter. Our resolution is in October at Alexa and Simon's wedding, which is where most of the characters who were involved in the plot are going to be. Wheels, of course, is still in jail, and Lucy is still in the hospital. Snake is there with a girl he started dating in college named Pam, and he and Joey have a conversation where they update us on Wheels' situation. He's going to trial soon, and they bury the hatchet at least a little. Caitlin is there as well, and she's talking to Spike, telling her that Lucy has some of her sight back already. And I will say that in the premiere episode of Degrassi, The Next Generation, we see Lucy with her sight back and walking with a cane and find out that she's working on her PhD. Then later in that episode, we see Wills show up briefly at the reunion to apologize to her for what he did. I know he shows up later in that series as well when Snake has to go through cancer treatments, but I'm not sure if Lucy ever shows up again. Joey and Caitlin talk for the first time since their breakup, and it's a bit awkward with Caitlin saying how well she's doing at college, and while Joey tries to say that he's going to boast about her one day, Caitlin gets very clenched up, and the moment Spike sees her window, she gets up and leaves the table. It's some great acting, because they get across how awkward the moment is, and Joey's being bumbling, and Caitlin is trying so hard not to just blow him off. Then they share a dance to a song called We Can't Go Back, and we get the closing lines of the original Degrassi saga. Did you ever think that we would have lasted? Well, we'll never know, will we? We can't go back. But we had some good times, right? Yeah. We had some great times. It's pretty cheesy. 
But the show is always a bit cheesy in places, and the movie definitely is cheesy in a number of places. And while it's not groundbreaking by any means, although I will say Stefan Brogan, who played Snake and Stacy Mystician, who played Caitlin, were the per- first people to say fuck on Canadian television, so I guess it was a little groundbreaking. <laughs> the movie is still a fun movie, and it makes me feel very nostalgic. Schools Out was the only Degrassi that I would have for the better part of at least a year or two. Then I would get a copy of that soundtrack mix that I mentioned earlier, and I would pay for my friend Kate, who lives up in Ottawa, to tape the first episode of Degrassi The Next Generation. She might have taped another one at one point for me. As the years went on, I would buy, read, and ultimately sell all of the Degrassi Talks books. These were tied into a series of documentary specials where the members of the Degrassi cast went around Canada and talked to teenagers about issues such as sex, drugs, alcohol, mental health, and sexuality. I've seen clips of the show, and it's very much in the vein of like MTV's True Life, which would air in the late 90s and early 2000s. I also own a copy of the script. It was autographed by Joey Jeremiah himself, Pat Mastriani. He was auctioning them off years ago as part of a charity fundraiser on eBay, and I happened to win this along with an autographed picture. I also own Degrassi High on DVD, the complete series, and that includes Schools Out. At one point, I had a handful of junior high episodes on VHS in the first two seasons of Next Generation on DVD, but I have since sold or given those away. But I'll hang on to this, and I'll hang on to Degrassi High, mainly because to me it's still something special. I mentioned that I used to watch the show and was more or less alone in doing it, so it felt like it was mine in a sense. But as I began to discover that I was not the only person who was a fan, I discovered that it actually had a fandom. It was not entirely my first venture into fandom. It was probably comics. But it was certainly my first foray into a fandom that had an online community. I've watched that community become much different than what it was when I simply added my email address to a listserv in 1998 or 1999. The Next Generation show introduced a lot of people to Degrassi. And I did enjoy the few seasons that I watched, although it did get to the point where I wasn't interested in the teen characters as much as the adult ones, and they were phasing them out anyway. But the show's stars have an online presence, and I follow a few, especially Joey Snake and Caitlin, Pat Mastriani, Stefan Brogan, and uh, Stacey Mystician. They've done convention appearances, they've done screenings of schools out in Canada, complete with Q&As afterward. Mastriani also organized a fan convention in Toronto a couple of years ago called Degrassi Palooza. I'm pretty jealous of those who did attend because it had a ton of cast members and panels. Perhaps one day I'll make my way to the Great White North and go to one of these events. In a way, my coverage of Schools Out is bittersweet. I still have my copy of the movie and the script, and maybe I'll watch it again at some point. But it's also the last time I'm really going to look at Degrassi, either on the blog or this podcast. There are plenty of places you can find stuff related to the show, including coverage of episodes, and if you're into the show, seek them out. If you're curious about the paper I wrote, Growing Up Degrassi is out of print, but you might be able to hunt a copy down. There's also a ton of episodes of the show available on YouTube for free, so again, go look for it. You'll find something. Thanks for coming along with me on this. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time around, I'm going to be looking at the comic series Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang. And Stella is going to come along with me for that, so check out that in about a month. And in about a month and a half, two months, I will be doing my part for J.L. May, as well as another episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains. So we're chugging right along. Until then, don't forget to send feedback, leave reviews, and follow me on Facebook and Twitter. And as always, thanks for listening. And take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. 
and on Twitter at PopAff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.